This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Saturday, April 22nd is Earth Day, the culmination of Earth Week, during which some one billion people around the world have participated in gatherings and virtual events to call attention to our collective responsibility for the planet. On this special episode of the Commonweal podcast, we're pleased to have as our guest the screenwriter and playwright Dorothy Fortenberry, who has written and commented widely on climate change. She's also the co-writer and executive producer of Extrapolations, the new Apple TV Plus drama that imagines what climate change might feel like in the near future. We talk not only about her work on the show, but also how climate change affects how she thinks about raising her family, human imperfection and the dangers of despair, and the political, social, and cultural developments that may yield meaningful progress on addressing the climate crisis. Our conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Dorothy. Thanks for joining us at the Commonweal Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So every era has its own list of reasons for not bringing children into the world, right? I grew up in the 80s and everybody then was saying, well, there's going to be nuclear Armageddon any second, so why have kids? But how does this era and this situation compare in your mind? Sure. I think I contemplate what I can imagine my le- the my children's lives will be like in the future. I certainly contemplate that. And I think about what skills I think might be useful for them, skills of resilience, skills of being able to adjust if something isn't going according to the way you think it will, skills of having a way of dealing with loss. I do think there are ways that you can try to prep your children for the challenges of climate change that are also just the challenges of any life. Even in a world where climate change is miraculously solved, our children will suffer. So I think our jobs as parents is to try to help them and guide them through that. I will say I know that the question of whether to have children or not is something that weighs in a lot of people's minds and that people are making their own decisions about it. I guess there's no sort of way of saying this without saying it in a way that sounds very odd, but I had no presumption that my children would have a happy life to begin right. with. Like, just, there, there's a... Yeah, it's not a guarantee. And then, yeah, yeah, so right, sure. and in, in, in any way, and I mm-hmm. think there's, looking in my family, there's a lot of, there's illness, there's mm-hmm. pain. I was very afraid that they would have immediate problems that, you know, immediately after birth, that something terrible would befall them. And so I think the decision to leap into the unknown of having children and say, I am going to make somebody who I know is going to suffer. That's so insane to begin with. And also they will have to grapple with climate change. It's like, sure, sure. But this whole process is something I cannot control, something that is inherently an act of faith. And so climate change is just one more level. Yeah. Yeah. I want to maybe shift a little bit and talk about your work in general. And, you know, with Handmaid's Tale and Extrapolations now, you've worked on two shows that might be thought of as dystopian in their themes. Is this just coincidental or have you generally always been drawn to this mode? I think I'm drawn to the question, what's the worst thing that could happen in all facets of life? I I think about it when I'm brushing my teeth, you know, Mm -hmm. what's the worst thing that could happen to a person who's brushing their teeth? I think about Mm -hmm. it big and small. Mm -hmm. It's a way of understanding what we are maybe going through right now. So in some ways, I'm lucky that I get to think about what are all the kind of terrible possibilities that might occur 
and have that be a job and not just that, not have it just be a weird hobby that I have. I think for me, it becomes about keeping it really specific. In the book of The Handmaid's Tale, which is a book that I love and I think is so, so beautiful and so well-written, the reason that it works is that there's this incredibly specific narrator. So the offered in the book is has a weird sense of humor. She makes odd connections between things. She has little flights of fancy. She is not very proud of her romantic history. Mm-hmm. She just feels like a very full, real person. She feels like a friend that you have, that you love hanging out with, but sometimes you think she's making mistakes. <laughs> and I think that perspective keeps the book going forward because as much as she is in a situation of distress, hanging out with her is quite pleasurable because of the particularities of her, of her character. I think mm-hmm. if the book were written in a way that just laid out the facts, that was like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened to all the women, and was very general, it would be unendingly grim. Yeah. Um, it, it would just, it would be unpleasant, and I don't, I wouldn't want to read it, I wouldn't want anyone else to read it, it'd be horrible. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think in my own work, I don't know that I can ever be as gifted as Margaret Atwood, but the thing that I'm aiming for is that sense of specificity, that mm. sense, sense that I'm not watching a mass event. I'm watching one very particular person right. go through something specific. Yeah, yeah. You are an observer of politics, an astute observer of politics. And I guess I'll ask, what about this particular political moment reassures you about the future and what discourages and angers or frightens you? I can't believe we got a climate change bill passed. Mm-hmm. Like Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin. He, right. If you wrote that in a script, if you were like, and then at the last possible second, mm-hmm. the most conservative senator, Democratic senator mm-hmm. from the most conservative state that's full of coal mm-hmm. mines gets the first climate change bill passed, you wouldn't mm-hmm. believe it. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that, both because of the specific provisions that it entails, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also, more broadly, I think the more civil society functions, the more civil society functions. Yeah. It's a self-reinforcing loop. So if mm-hmm. you have a group of people who believe that the institutions, broadly speaking, that we have created over the centuries are capable of addressing the problems that we are facing, then those institutions are invested with the power that we give to them. If they use that power wisely and responsibly, then maybe they can solve the next problem. A body that feels like it's actually meeting the needs of the moment is encouraging on its own, regardless of what issue it's addressing, in the same way that a body that fails to meet any given moment communicates, I think, a sense of failure and despair and creates an opening for unaccountable, unelected actors. Mm. I think those people become more appealing if it feels like the actual elected officials are incapable of responding. And I think in a, in a world where the sort of people that we've invested with power aren't working, then vigilantism becomes kind of like a cool thought. And that really freaks me out. So I think yeah. the moments where literally any group of people solves literally any problem <laughs> makes me feel like, okay, we did this one. Maybe we can do the next one. And conversely, the moments where there is a problem and just it, no one seems interested in solving it. It just drags on, feels a sense of hopelessness. Those are the types of problems that make me feel like, oh dear, 
the machinery itself is breaking down. And that worries me. I think right now there's a lot of what I would call frontlash backlash politics. So you have a decade of tremendous civil rights advances by LGBTQ folks, and then you have a decade of really strong pushback and going, nope, that was too, some people think that's too far. We must have a bunch of laws against. So frontlash backlash have tremendous consequences to everybody whose lives are affected, but there is a hope that maybe you land on some sort of new median and then the frontlash backlash continues. And it's a process you can observe over centuries. And and I have feelings about it and it depends on the issue. I have different feelings, but it feels like something that takes place in this plane. The things that really worry me and keep me up at night are things that feel like avalanches where one set of problems creates the next set of problems. So if you cut down a certain quantity of the Amazon rainforest, then you release so much carbon that you have entered a feedback loop that is irreversible. It's not happening on a, like, we swing too far, we swing too far thing where there is a median. It's just a loop. And I think I think democracy is sort of like that, like anti-democratic actions lead to anti-democratic actions lead to anti-democratic actions and climate change is like that. So you're in LA and you've been through several months of interesting weather events and other things. And do you find yourself affected by that? Not, I guess, not physically, but more philosophically, existentially, spiritually. Sure. Like speaking of the kids, we went on a trip with them this weekend, just a couple hours away in California, but all the mountains near us are covered in snow now. And they almost, they, the, the, you, the normal pattern would be that some of them would be somewhat covered in snow for a little bit. Mm-hmm. In the last 10 years, they have been unseasonably warm and mm-hmm. free of snow. And right now, they're unseasonably drenched in snow. And we, and you know, it, my kids, they're in the back seat. They want to like look at their iPad. They want to do something that is electronic. And my husband and I just kept like kicking them and being like, look out the window. You have to remember this. Mm-hmm. It will never be like this again. Mm-hmm. You will mm-hmm. never see this again. And I think we had a sense that this odd California, cold, rainy, snowy winter. It just feels so unusual and so special. And they can't understand what it's like to have something never happen in their lives again. Like that that level of of conception is just beyond them. So to them, it's okay, it's snowy. But I think we were both shaking them and going like, it's mostly going to be drought. Please make a memory of the snow. Please make a memory of the snow to hold on to. Yeah. I want to ask another question here about extrapolations. The noted climate activist and writer Bill McKibben was an advisor, from what I understand. And I remember him once also writing very approvingly some years ago in the New York Review of Books about Laudato Si, Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical on care for our common home. Do you, do you remember that article by any chance? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So he wrote this. He said, instead of a narrow and focused contribution to the climate debate, It turns out to be nothing less than a sweeping radical and highly persuasive critique of how we inhabit this planet. An ecological critique, yes, but also a moral, social, economic, and spiritual commentary. And I guess I'm wondering your thoughts about the significance of something like Laudato Si in the context of your attention to the topic of climate change, and maybe what you think about McKibben's assessment of it eight years after Laudato Si. Is this something that can still inspire the same urgency? Yeah, I hope so. I think the thing about Laudato Si that I hold on to that I think is so special and unusual is it has a 
real compassion for people while also not shying away from naming and describing exactly what is going on. And I think that combination is very unusual in Mm. climate communication. I think that there can be a lot of finger pointing. It's very easy to access the kind of angry register. It's Mm -hmm. very easy to access the despair register and jump to the apocalypse and just be like, we're living in an ongoing hellscape in a world of garbage. That that tone is Mm. very achievable for Mm -hmm. a lot of people. And then I think a sort of, well, throw your hands up, walk away kind of place comes out of it. But Mm -hmm. What I think Pope Francis is able to do in the encyclical is constantly hold on to the human perspective. Like in some Mm -hmm. ways, it's the same thing as I was saying that I responded to in The Handmaid's Tale, Mm -hmm. where you have a really particular person. And there's not a main character of Laudato Si, but there is just a real love for people while being clear-eyed about all of people's failings. And it's really hard to do both of those things. It's really it's really hard to see cruelty and greed and short-sightedness and obsession with profit and mm. over-reliance on technology and diminishment of the lives of people who are not rich. Such common human traits to be able to name those so precisely as he does throughout the book while also saying we are beloved and we are made by God and God loves us as we are. And I feel like I had been looking for something like that, that so much of the climate writing that I had read just left me in a place of very despairing. And I was really grateful when the book came out. So I I don't know if it's changing anybody else's life, but Mm -hmm. I know that it changed mine and I walk around handing it out to people. So hopefully it'll change somebody else's too. Yeah. Well, hopefully you say, and it said that hope doesn't disappoint. And it seems that even taking on a project meant to be viewed over multiple episodes like extrapolations and involving a timeline stretching generations into the future itself expresses a certain type of hope. So are you hopeful about how we and the world might do something to save ourselves? Yeah. I think people have the capacity. I think we have the technological capacity We both have the technology right now that we need to make enormous changes, and we have the capacity to develop additional technologies and additional ways of interacting with each other. People's creativity and ingenuity are limitless. I don't think it's guaranteed. I wouldn't say I'm sanguine about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not complacent. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing about climate change is for many decades, it was understood primarily as an issue of controversy. And that's not coincidence, right? That's because specific people wanted it to be understood that way and spent all their time and money Mm -hmm. trying to make it understood that way. Because if it is a controversy, then we are stuck going like, well, is it or isn't it? And we're, you know, it's a fight about, is it real? And I think now in this decade, we have maybe progressed to the point where we're no longer fighting about whether or not it's real, we still have this kind of like, well, are we going to do it or aren't we going to do it? It still feels a little binary. And the real imaginative challenge of climate change is to understand that we're all adjusting something, these little increments, but every little increment has a tremendous potential to either hurt or help tons of people and other species. And so the difference between 
1.1 warming, 1.2 warming, 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, 2.5 degrees Celsius. You know, they seem like these little fiddly like math problem things and it feels like they can't possibly have any reality. But what they actually are is they're tremendous. And I think we we are we can't possibly not do climate change. We are already in climate change. I'm living in a flood because of it. But we have the ability to collectively push that dial as low as we possibly can to great advantage. Dorothy Fortenberry, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dorothy Fortenberry is co-writer and executive producer of Extrapolations, streaming now on Apple TV+. She is also the award-winning writer and producer on Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, and her work has also appeared in Commonweal. Look for it on our website. You can also listen to previous Commonweal podcasts about climate change and the environment, including Griffin Olenek's conversation with the late environmental writer Barry Lopez, and Issa Simon's recent interviews with authors Katie Wirth and Jake Biddle on climate education and migration in the United States. You can find these on our podcast page. An excerpt of Issa's interview with Jake Biddle also appears in our April issue. And see the climate change tag on our website for all of Commonweal's commentary and coverage of the environment and climate, on everything from policy to Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. This is Dominic Preziosi, and thanks for listening to this special episode of the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>